0: Welcome to the Watermark OC.Church podcast. Thank you for listening. Think about today, Palm Sunday. It was an exciting day in Jerusalem that day. There were, the, the, the city was swollen with people. You know, a couple million travelers, spiritual travelers, had come in for the Passover feast. And so there was this excitement in the air, air because it was madness. It wasn't March madness, it was Messiah madness. In Jerusalem, and today is the beginning of Passion Week, and the the church throughout the whole world is focusing on Jesus when he came to Jerusalem for the last time, what he came to do for us, and then the book of Hebrews is looking back on what Jesus came to be and do for us and saying our hope is secure, our hope is certain because it's anchored in the finished work of Jesus, and that's what the book of Hebrews is really all about, You see, when Jesus entered Jerusalem for the last time, it was Messiah madness. The book of Matthew, Matthew's gospel records it this way. They brought a donkey and a colt and placed their cloaks on them uh, for Jesus to sit on. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road. I mean, there were so many people, and there was this Messiah favor. They thought Jesus might be the one. And while others cut branches, they, they brought palm tree branches, and they put them and spread them on the road, and the crowd's went ahead of him, and those that followed shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. It was Messiah madness. They were thinking Jesus is the one, and their brackets, Jesus versus Rome, we win, yeah, we win, we're number one, right? They were all, they were full of Messiah fever, they wanted to throw off the oppression of Rome, and you know what? Jesus busted their brackets (laughs) he busted their brackets you what's the first thing that he did he went to the temple he didn't go to the military and say hey let's ramp up he didn't go to the seat of government the palace he went to the temple to test the heart of the people where were they at and at the temple what did he find he found religion at its best right he said, this, this place is supposed to be a house of prayer. You've made it a den of robbers. And he started turning over the temples. He was so frustrated because the people did not understand the heart of God. And then the next morning, he went and, had, and spent the night on the Mount of Olives. And when he was going back to the city the next day, he was hungry, and he saw this... this uh, this tree, a fig tree, and he wanted to go over and grab a fig and get a little bite for his stomach, and there was no fruit on it. It looked like it would be bearing fruit, and it wasn't. And he cursed the fig tree. Why did he do that? Does he, was he was he hangry and not hungry and hangry? He was just hangry and just mad at the tree. No, it was a prophetic word about what he'd seen in the temple. That the the religious activity of Israel, all the stuff that was external, all the stuff that they were doing was bearing no fruit. Religion bears no fruit with regards to relationship with the authentic and true God. You see, what was Jesus saying about religion? Why did he enter Jerusalem for the last time? Why, instead of an earthly crown, did he get a cross at the end of his week in Jerusalem? What was he saying about religion? Jesus did not come to make a better religion for us, guys. He did not come to establish a new religion. In spite of what the world might say about Christianity, Jesus came To end religion, to finish religion, and to offer us something totally different and something totally more wonderful and better than religion could ever offer us. And that's what the point of the book of Hebrews is all about. What is the main point of Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 8. Now, the main point of what we've been saying for the first seven, eight chapters, up to eight chapter 8 of Hebrews, is this. This is the main point of the whole book. We do have such a high priest who sat down at the right hand of the throne of majesty in heaven and who serves in the, in the sanctuary, in the heavenly sanctuary, the true tabernacle set up by the Lord, not by mere human not made by mere human beings. What is the author saying? What is this main point? What he's saying is Jesus did not come to establish a new and better religion. He didn't come to reform and make Judaism better. He didn't come to establish better practices or better prayers or better things that you go through cantations or sac he didn't come to do that. He didn't come to form a better way of religion. He came to replace religion with himself. He came to offer us a new covenant relationship with God. Not a religion, but a new covenant relationship with God. That's the point of the whole book. That's why he's superior. That's why he's the ultimate. That's why you want to hang on to him in the storms of life. Because it's only the anchor of relationship with God through Jesus that holds us in the storms of life. That's the point of the whole book. He came to offer us. A relationship with God now if you were Jewish and you understood the Old Testament and you read this passage because this is written to Jews who've become Christians they're being persecuted in the first century Roman world they're thinking of walking away and going back to religion they would have noticed something unique about this high priest the priesthood of Jesus is different than the priesthood of all the priests that came before him in the Levitical system. Why? Because this high priest sits down at the right hand of the throne of majesty. That's a place for governance. The right hand of the throne of majesty is where co-regents sit. It's the place where kings sit. This this priesthood is Is a kingly priesthood. Jesus is a priest and king, and if you have read the Old Testament, you realized under the law, you never had the same person as a priest and a king. They were always separate. There was always a separate priest doing his work and always a separate king. And yet in this priesthood, we have someone who is uniquely a king sitting in the right hand of God, sitting in the throne of governance, a kingly placed, who is also a priest. There is only one person in the Bible that held that, and he's this shadowy person. His name is Melchizedek. We talked about him a little bit in chapter 7, but he he's a type of Jesus. He's before the law. You never have somebody, once the law is instituted, you never had a king and a priest in the same person in the same position. What is the author trying to say about that? And guess what? In the temple, in the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, where the high priest did his work, there wasn't a chair there. There wasn't a chair for him to sit down. No, he went in there and he was working. He was ministering. He was interceding for himself. He was cleansing himself. He was making sure that he was pure and he was doing the work of cleansing the sins of the people by offering sacrifices and prayers and oblations. He never sat down. He was working. How can this priest, this Jesus priest, this Jesus king... Sit down and serve us. He's seated and he's serving. What does that mean uniquely about the priesthood and the ministry of Jesus? To understand that, we have to go back and think a little bit about religion, when I, the first subject that I talked about. What is religion to begin with? There are thousands of religions in the world. What is religion? I will just offer two observations, two things that I think all religions have in common. All religions believe, first of all, that behind the natural, behind uh, scientific principles and the natural order, there is an ultimate reality that cannot be spl- Explained by natural principles and processes. There is an ultimate. There is a supernatural. There is some type of force or being or person out there. All religions would say that. But all religions would also say there's a gap. There's a gap between mankind and that ultimate reality. There is a gap. There is a distance. And we are not experiencing as human beings... The ultimate fullness or reality or what could happen to us because of this gap. And so all religions have these two things in common. There's an ultimate reality and there's this gap between us and that reality. Now here's where the diversity begins. Religions all have different prescriptions of how you bridge that gap, how you cross that gap. There's a great diversity of opinion as to how we bridge the gap. Sacrifices and offerings. Sacrifice these things, give these offerings, and and that will propel you across the gap, right? In the Old Testament, take an animal and, you know, sacrifice that animal in a temple, and that will appease the God, right? Keeping a moral code. If you keep these moral beliefs that we have, if you believe and live these certain path of moral principles, you'll, you'll shoot yourself across the gap. Rituals, rites, and traditions, you need to be in our, our, our system of rituals. If you do these certain practices and continue to practice these traditions, that will make you acceptable and you'll cross the gap. Or, or it's through uh, spiritual experiences, prayer, meditation, you know, if you, God is within you. God is a force and he's within you and all you have to do is awaken yourself to the God within you. And so through the transformation of your consciousness, through prayer and meditation and going inward and, and working towards nothingness, you can get in touch with the divine being that's within you, that's everywhere. You see, every religion has a different prescription of how what you do, how you live, what you need to give, what you need to experience in order to shoot yourself across the gap. And the book of Hebrews and the author is saying, Jesus offers you a completely different way than religion of crossing that gap because he is both a king and a priest. What does that mean? Well, in the Old Testament, the king represented what? What? God's law to the people. The king represented God's governance, God's authority to the people. And the king was to enforce those laws to the people. He represented God to the people. And the priest, what did the priest do? It represented the people to God because the people failed. The people fell short. The, The priest would pray. The priest would intercede. The priest would offer sacrifices To represent the people to God. What the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus is both in the same. He is the ultimate king and the ultimate priest. And it is in him and through him that we cross the gap uniquely. That no religion can offer us that way. Uniquely in Jesus Christ. Uniquely, not in religion but in relationship to Jesus Christ. You see, the Bible over and over is saying Jesus is the ultimate reality, right? That's what the book of Hebrews starts with. Jesus is the ultimate reality. He is the one who's on the other side of that gap, right? He's the one who came to reveal the true God to us. He crossed that gap for us. Here's what it says in Hebrews 1.3. The Son is the radiance of God's glory, the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. After he had provided for purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of majesty. He is seated at the right hand of God, and when he came and crossed the gap, he is the exact, the visible representation of the invisible God, Right? He is God with skin on. The same Shekinah glory that filled the temple in the Old Testament filled the body of Jesus Christ, right? He came, the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. The Shekinah glory of God filled his earthly temple. Jesus said, you destroyed this temple. What was he talking about? The temple in the Old Testament, the temple that was built? Harris, was he talking about that? No, he was talking about his own body. He said, you destroy this body and I'll raise it up again. Because it's the glory of God. I'm God. I'm the one who created everything and I came to reveal the exact representation of God's being to us. I am the ultimate reality on the other side of the gap. You know, every religion has a founder. Every religion has a sage, a prophet, a wise man, and that founder says, I, I, have, I have understanding, I have enlightenment, and I'm going to point you to the ultimate reality. I'm here to show you and enlighten you, to point you to the ultimate reality across the gap. Only Jesus said, I am the ultimate reality that all the prophets and the sages and the teachers point to. No one ever made those statements. Read the Gospels. Jesus claimed to have the authority to forgive sins. He accepted worship. He said, before Abraham was, I am. He claimed to be eternal. He said, I have the power over life and death. I am the resurrection and the life. If anyone dies and believes in me, he's going to live again. Jesus said, I have the authority because I'm the one. I'm God with skin on If you've seen me, you've seen the fire. I am the ultimate reality to which all the teachers and prophets and sages point to. I am the reality across the gap. That's his kingship, but he's also a priest, the ultimate priest, because he uniquely, in his ministry to us, he bridges the gap. What is the... Book of Colossians, chapter 1, say about that. Once you were alienated from God, there's the gap, right? Once you were alienated from God, you were far away from God, there was a gap between you and God. And how was that gap bridged? You were enemies in your minds because of your evil behavior, but now He, Jesus, our High Priest, has He has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through through death to present you holy in his sight without blemish and free from accusation. Jesus uniquely bridges the gap by doing it for us. He's not a religion. He's a person. Christianity doesn't, Christianity doesn't offer you a set of principles and practices to cr- cross the gap. It offers you a person, the person of Jesus Christ. As we say many, many times, and you want to have a God conversation with people about the uniqueness of Christianity? Christianity doesn't say do. Religion says do. Here's what you need to do in your own efforts to cross the gap and make yourself acceptable to God. Christianity is spelled done. It's what God did for you in Jesus Christ to cross the gap for you. That's the uniqueness of Christianity. It is a relationship. It is not a religion. He bridges the gap with his own body and blood. His life, death, and resurrection is the bridge across the gap that you could never cross through your own religious efforts. That's why Jesus was cleansing the temple. That's why he was cursing the fig tree, because religion can never bring you into an intimate relationship with God. That's what he was saying. That's the author of Hebrew. He is seated. Why is he seated as a high priest? Why? Why? Because his work is done. Jesus is seated because the work of religion is done. He finished it on the cross. There is no more religious work to be done, guys. There's no more efforts to make. There's no more spiritual accomplishments that you can do to make yourself acceptable to God. It is finished. He has done it for you. That is the great cry of Good Friday and the cross. That's why they call it Good Friday. And we come here at 5 o'clock on Friday, we'll nail our sins to the cross because it is finished. The work of religion is done. No more sacrifices. No more temples. No more priest incantations. It is finished. It is done. Do you know why Christians were persecuted for the first 300 years of the church? Rome loved religion, guys. There were thousands of religions in Rome. There were temples and priests on every corner. And yet Christians were persecuted. Do you know what they called Christians? Do you know what Roman philosophers and Roman authors called Christians? Atheists. Christians were atheists because they didn't believe in religion. They were non-believers. Because Christianity was not original. They didn't even know what to do with it. As a matter of fact, in the New Testament, there are two words, Greek words that are used for religious practices and processes. They are never used by disciples or the authors of Scripture to speak about Christianity. There's only two times in the New Testament that this word for religion in the Roman world is used. One is used in the book of Acts by a Roman procurator whose name was Festus. He was not a believer. He was curious about Paul And he he coined what Paul was doing as religious stuff. He was not an insider. He did not even understand. The other one that uses this word is the Apostle Paul. He's speaking about his old life as a Pharisee. And he uses this Greek word for religion, about his former life in Judaism. You see, everybody who writes Scripture does not refer to Christianity as a religion because they know it is an authentic relation. They have new terms in Christ. They have new words because it's not a religion. It is being placed into the death and resurrection of Jesus and that is grace. That is a whole different thing. It's not a religion. It's a relationship with God by faith through his grace. That's what the author's been trying to say for eight chapters and he says that now the work is done. The work is finished. Jesus is the one who bridges the gap. You have to imagine a dis- discussion between a Roman and a Christian in the first century world. And the Roman might say, hypothetically, oh, Christianity, a new religion. Where's your temple? Uh, we don't have a temple. You don't have a temple? You don't have, you don't have a temple where the priest does his sac? No, we don't have a... Well, well where are your sacrifices? Where are your offerings of oblations and things? Where, where, where do you make your sacrifices to appease the God? Then? We have no sacrifice. Jesus is our sacrifice. But where is your high priest? Where is the one that bridges the gap and does the incantations? Where do you meet so the high priest can pray? We don't have a high priest. Jesus is our high priest. What? You have no temple? You have no sacrifices? You have no high priest? What kind of religion is that? And the answer is, no kind of religion at all, right? It's not a religion. It's a relationship that we live by faith with the Son of God. And that, it's a game changer, guys. See, Jesus doesn't come to offer us a better religion. He comes to offer us a new covenant relationship with God. That's what the prophet Jeremiah was talking about. This is a quote from Jeremiah 31. He was talking to God's people. There's going to be a day coming when God is going to establish a new covenant relationship with us. And look at how he describes it. There are... For if there had been nothing wrong with that first covenant, no place would have been sought for another. But God found fault with the people and said, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, a relationship covenant with the people of Israel and with the people of Judah. I will not be like the covenant I made with our ancestors when I took them by the hand to lead them out of Egypt because they did not remain faithful to my covenant. And I turned away from them, declares the Lord. You see, the old covenant had conditions in it. It was conditional. It had religious aspects to it. And it never could provide intimacy with God because the people could not live up to the conditional clauses, right? Even though they said, we will, they didn't. And they failed. And God turned, see, that's religion I turned my face away from them. They did not keep my covenant, and I turned my face away from them. That's religion. That's saying, I will do these things if you do these things. It's a, conditional, it's a conditional covenant. It's a conditional contract, and we couldn't live up to it because of our sinful, broken human hearts. And God made a better way, and that's the new covenant. It's not based on religious efforts or the law. It's based on God's grace You see, in the Old Covenant, when God saw our sins, he turned away. He turned away, right? He turned away from us. In the New Covenant, when God sees us, he doesn't turn away. He turns towards us. The Old Covenant, when God saw our sins, he turned away. When the New Covenant, God sees us, he turns away from our sins, He doesn't turn away from us. How can he do that? How can he turn away from our sins and now turn towards us? Where did this covenant get established? Where did it start ultimately? Where was it completed? Jesus says, this is my new covenant in my blood on the cross. On the cross, God turned his face away from Jesus. He took the covenant curse of the old covenant that we could not fulfill. He took that curse and God forsook him. He said, Why and why hast thou forsaken me? And God turned his face away from his son so he could turn his face towards you. So we could look at you as free and holy and without blemish. And now, when God looks at you, it says later in this verse, I will remember their sins no more. I I choose to remember your sins. I choose to look away and I look towards you. That is the new covenant in his blood, a covenant of grace, a covenant of relationship. And because of that covenant, now it breeds authenticity. We don't have to fear when we come to him. We don't have to hide. We don't have to pretend through religious practices. We don't have to worry. uh, Am I in or am I out? It's all done. It's finished. You're in because of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And there can be true intimacy. As As we close our service today, as we think about that, We think about this covenant of love and what it does to us because as we begin to walk in this covenant of grace, this unconditional acceptance of God, it begins to change us. And we don't just know about God. Now we know God. We're intimately involved because he's speaking to us through his Holy Spirit. He's writing his laws on our heart, and now it breeds intimacy and life. And we can be honest. We don't have to hide. We don't have to be afraid. Right, it, it brings equality because there's no more exclusivity. See, religion brings exclusivity. If my life is based upon my works, if my wife is based upon my moral code, I'm going to become better than somebody else in my religious works, and I'm going to have the tendency to look down upon others that are not as religious as us, as me. And that breeds pride and exclusion. That's why religion does create a lot of conflict. Jesus would agree with that. Jesus would say, I'm not into religion. I'm into something different. And so we begin to see everybody as equal at the foot of the cross. We begin to accept because we've been accepted. We become people that are equal, open, inviting, hospitable, loving. That's the church, a new covenant community. Right, And then we walk together in that covenant. It changes us so that we can love others, not conditionally. Marriage is not a contract. I, I do all kinds of premarital counseling. and the first, the first session with a couple is, guys, you're not getting into a contract. There's no if clauses. When you say, I do, there is no if clauses. Or you've just got a contract, and your marriage, when things get tough, when you, when you fail your promises, where are you going to go with that condition? You're only going to go to the God that has no conditions on you, and allow Him to change you and be that covenant love. I end with a story. I remember I was counseling a couple. The guy was an amazing specimen. He was a fireman. The dude was cut. Man, he was just bulging with muscles. Yeah, yeah. Bob Fulmer, there he is. Thanks, Bob. I was trying to be anonymous on that for you. So this dude was cut. This dude was handsome. This had it all going on. He had this beautiful wife. And he said, Bucky, he's so angry. He said, you know, I pride myself on my code. I've never lost a man in the field. I, we go into fires. We we go to desperate situations, and I've never lost a man in the field because we keep the code. And I live by that, and I've, I've saved lives by that, and that's the code. But something happened. My wife, my wife of two years broke the code. She betrayed me. She walked away from me. I can't get over it. I love her, but I can't get over it. It's breaking my heart. And that's why they came to me for counseling. And I said, dude, you're never going to get over this by climbing the ladder, man. By climbing up that ladder and putting that moral code on this woman. She can't climb that ladder with you. She can't make it that high. It's never going to work by you climbing ladder. You're going to have to get down off that ladder. You're never going to save her by a code, by control, by judgment. You're never going to save her. The thing that you saved lives is not going to save her because you're going to have to get off your ladder of judgment. You're going to have to extinguish that fire of hatred for her in your heart with only one thing, by getting on that ladder and giving her grace. This is not a contract, dude. This is a covenant. And you're going to have to forgive her. And the only place I know to forgive her is to go to the one that stepped down for the ladder and rescued you by his body and blood that is the only well, that is only water for your soul that will help save your marriage. And that day that man gave his life to Jesus Christ and he began to forgive and heal his marriage. It's the only place I know to go to have committed life giving relationships. It's at this table as we remember his covenant grace. This is my body for you. No conditions no clauses i'm all in for you i want you to be my people i want you to know me i want you to know my heart i want to write my laws on your heart through my love i want you to walk with me forever let's come to this table and let's celebrate passion week he came for you it is the work of religion is done at this table we take his body and blood thank you jesus the work is done Help me to walk in your covenant grace and your covenant love. Let's bow our heads. Father, thanks for this morning. There are those in this room that need your grace. They need to be filled with your covenant love. They need forgiveness and mercy. They need to be able to extend that to their spouses and to their kids, to their neighbors, to their workers. Lord, we're all all disappointed in this life. Help us not to be religious, God. Religion never gets us there, Father. It's only through relationship and grace. Heal us by your grace, your body and blood, that we might heal and love others in our lives. We thank you for this table. We celebrate you that we have a relationship through your body and blood. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's worship. Let's thank the Lord for what he did for us when he came and gave his life to us. To find out more about us, go online to watermarkoc.church.